think it was a few weeks ago that my mother asked me, why is God keeping me in this world? She felt kind of useless, not able to help anyone being confined to uh, her chair and her bed. And I told her one thing that meant a lot to me, and I, I knew it meant a lot to others as well, was that she served as an example of someone who kept the Christian faith all the way to the end. Someone who was a believer, not just starting, but finishing as well. At age of 90, she was a living example of one who hopes in God, and the hope is almost about to be turned into sight, and she continues to believe that message of the gospel. We were really privileged to see her clinging to her God all the way to her deathbed and know that here is someone who was, was not pretending. Here was someone who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, unwaveringly affirming her love for her God, her Savior Jesus Christ, and her love of Scripture as well. And though her Lord did bid her go through some harsh times, um, she always confessed God as good, and um, that God, though we couldn't understand his ways, his ways were always wise. I wonder if you have sufficient motivation in your own heart to not just be a believer today, but to cling to Christ all the way to the end of your life. If you don't, I'd like to preach this message with my mom in mind and maybe dedicated to her, but for your application from the letter of uh, 1 John, if you would open there, in chapter 2, sort of towards the end of chapter 2, verse 28, into the beginning of chapter 3, verse 3, because uh, if you need sufficient motivation to maintain your faith all the way to the end, I think this text supplies it. 1 John chapter 2 verses 28 through chapter 3 and verse 3. I'll go ahead and read it. And John writes, Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And then chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, verse 28 plainly and directly starts out by urging believers, believers like you and me, and now little children abide, abide in him. The him is Christ, of course, right? You know, there are a lot of exhortations in the Bible that are given to believers, and they are all important. This one is one of the more important exhortations 
given to believers. And this one really is climactic even in the letter of 1 John, and I want to show that to you here in a minute. From this higher perch in the letter, we're kind of jumping into the middle of the letter here, but from this higher perch in this letter, we can kind of use this spot to retrace John's argument in the letter leading up to this climax. Now keep your finger there at the end of chapter 2, but look back to chapter 1. Look back to the very beginning of the letter. And we could see that John has been progressively building a convincing argument, and his argument is against false teachers. Some call these false teachers incipient Gnostics, people who denied that Jesus Christ had really come in the flesh, and so they denied everything else that Jesus did in his body. They denied his death, they denied his resurrection, everything that was important to the Christian faith. And of course, this was a direct challenge to the entire Christian faith. And these false teachers had penetrated the church, and this is near the end of the first century, And so John is trying to protect the true church from these false teachers, and he's been progressively building a convincing argument against them. Um, Some of them had been in the true church, and they had defected from the true gospel, and they had left the true church. And so writing sometime, as I said, near the end of the first century, John is concerned about this. And he's concerned about how the false teaching has penetrated the true church and has drawn disciples away after these false teachers. And so John was being persuasive in his strengthening of his own spiritual children and their resolve not to go along with these false teachers who left and abandoned the true faith, but to remain, to abide in the truth of Christ. Notice how John begins in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He's kind of boldly declaring all of the historical truths of the Christian faith that were seen and were heard and were even handled by the apostles of the Lord Jesus. And then if you look at verse 5 of chapter 1, John sums up the entire message that Jesus left the apostles to give to the world. And in one sentence he says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. What does that mean? That means that God is perfectly what? Pure. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly true. He's also perfectly loving. And what John begins to write from this point on always reflects back to this foundational verse, verse 5, about God's unchanging character. God is light and you won't find any darkness in him at all. And then if you just keep gazing at chapter 1 there in verses 5 through 10, John takes the claims of the false teachers and tests their claims by God's true character. If someone says that they have fellowship with this kind of a God who's light, but they don't walk in the light, then guess what? Their claims are false, right? They're liars. And if they deny that they themselves are sinners, that's what these false teachers were doing, then guess what? They don't have the truth inside of them either. They haven't learned the truth at all. And then you roll into chapter 2 and verses 3 through 11, and John shows that those who are not willing to obey the commandments that Jesus gave, especially the commandment to love one another, they cannot possibly have a personal relationship with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus walked in love, right? Only those who live day by day reflecting the character of God, only they are true Christians. The rest... What are they? They are, they are pretenders. They are deceivers. They may hold an outward form of religion, but their lives 
betray their claims. Now, John's being hard on these false teachers, and he's a little concerned that his own spiritual children, who are really believing in Christ, might misunderstand what he's saying. And so in the midst of these threats and these revealing tests, John provides a little bit of reassurance for true believers. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He tells his children, don't worry about your sins. I'm writing these that you wouldn't sin, but don't worry about your sins if you've sinned because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous one. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the atoning sacrifice. He's the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sin. And then if you go a little bit further in chapter 2 to verses 12 through 14, you can see him reassuring his children again. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you, little children, because you know the Father and you've overcome the evil one, young men. And uh, to the fathers, you know the Father. You, your sins have been forgiven. He reassures them. And he gives that as the backdrop. Now, when you get to chapter 2 and verse 15, we begin what I would describe as the ascent up to this mountaintop, up to this climax that we're in at the end of chapter 2. It all begins in verse 15. If we were in a musical, we would say that John is starting his crescendo here at verse 15. Why? Because in verse 15, he more openly starts addressing his main concern. His guns are aimed at these false teachers who are actively attempting to deceive the children and to, to lure them back into the world. And so he bluntly writes, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world with all of its allurements. And then in verses 18 and 19, John brands these false teachers as people who have abandoned the original truth and they followed the spirit of the Antichrist. Yes, the Antichrist. Very tough words, but true. And then you go a little further in verses 22 and 23, and he reveals what their lie was about Jesus. They denied that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, had come in the flesh. In other words, they denied the incarnation of the Son of God. They denied that God became a man and everything that went along with that. That was their lie. And so he has to address the believers and reassure them in verse 20 and 21 and then again in verses 24 and 27, all leading up to verse 28. And he reminds believers that they have the truth. They have an anointing already from God. They have the Holy Spirit as their teacher and they have the apostles who gave them the scriptures and what they were given as the true church is enough. They don't need anything else. It's fully sufficient for them. They didn't need to start to look for some other message outside of the church. They didn't need to look for some new revelation. They didn't need to have some new message. They had enough. They had the anointing from God, the Holy Spirit who taught them through the apostles' teachings. So John is using all of that to work up to his highest level in verses 27 and 28, kind of gathering emotion along with him. And he's really writing this. He's saying, children... Since you have the Holy Spirit as your teacher, a very special anointing from God, and since the Holy Ghost dwells inside of you, and since he has taught you to remain in Jesus Christ, then you abide in him. Verse 27. Again, verse 28. Little children, abide in him. That's the mountain peak. That's the climax of his concern. Don't follow these false teachers. Don't abandon 
Christ. Don't join the false movement. Don't let them deceive you. Don't go back to loving the world. Don't go back into the world. Don't lose your confidence in the truth. Keep your faith in Christ. Remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Abide in him. Now, without a doubt, this is John's most crucial exhortation to his spiritual children up to this point in this letter. And it confronts us with a very important question. I want you to ask this of yourself. What is motivating you to stay true to Jesus Christ right now? You're here in church. You're following the Lord. You're serving him. What is it that would motivate you to stay true to Jesus Christ all the way to the end? What is it that anchors you to Christ? What is it inside of you that you know you would never turn your back on Jesus Christ and go back into the partying life, go back into some other false religion, go back into the world in some way? What is it that keeps you in Christ? You should be asking yourself that question. What compels you to live a godly life in the midst of a godless culture? Well, I think the answer for you is found in verses 28 through verse 3 of chapter 3. In these verses, John is presenting two powerful motivations to remain in Christ, to abide in Christ. The first motivation is because of the promise of Christ's coming. That's in verses 28 and 29, the promise of Christ's coming. should get you excited. And second motivation is because of the privilege of being a son of God, a privilege of being a child of God, and that's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now, I want to look at those two motivations, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time, but first, I want to make sure you really understand what it means to abide in Christ, because there's some strange ideas out there in devotional reading and commentaries and things like that, and you'll hear them talk about abiding in Christ, and you get all these different definitions as to what it means to abide in Christ. So I kind of want to talk about the command to abide before I get into the two motivations, okay? What does it mean to abide in Christ? If someone came to you and said, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What definition would you give it? You see, even though it is true that some Christians get to know Jesus more intimately than other Christians, that is true. The command to abide in Christ in John's writings, including John chapter 15, which is where I think it all originates, is not, is not a command to enter into a deeper relationship with Jesus. It's not a command to get to know Jesus better. That would be a good commandment if God gave it, and he does give it in other places. But that's not this command. I emphasize this because it's common teaching in devotional literature that abiding in Christ represents some deeper level that only some believers attain to. They're achieved only by some Christians who, who really abide in Christ. They kind of think this way. Some believers believe in Christ. We all believe in Christ. But there are only some believers that abide in Christ. That's not what John is commanding here. I have no doubt that there are some believers who walk with Christ more closely than others. But that's not what abiding is, and I don't want that in your head as we're going through this. 
Rather, abiding is a command, listen, a command to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. It is to persevere in your faith all the way to the end. In fact, the Greek verb abide, you might have another translation, but uh, the Greek verb is meno, and it simply means to stay, stay put, um, to remain, um, to not depart, um, to continue on in something that you're already in. It used in other contexts, for example, in John chapter 1, verse 32, it refers to the Holy Spirit coming down and remaining on Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit came, and then he didn't leave Jesus, he remained on Jesus. Ah, same verb, abiding. In John chapter 2 and verse 12, it refers to the disciples who were living or residing in a city. That means they came to the city and they, they stayed there, they remained, they menoed, they abided, Okay. What someone or something abides in, of course, depends on the context. In our context, in 1 John, it refers to remaining in the truth about Jesus Christ and not following the false teachers away from the original gospel. I want you to keep your finger in 1 John and turn to 2 John, if you would. That's the very next letter, 2 John. And look at verse 9, and you'll see a similar warning. 2 John, verse 9. John writes, anyone who goes too far and does not, same verb, abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. What do you get from that? That true Christians remain in Christ. True Christians remain in the teaching. True Christians don't follow some new teaching. They remain true to the old teaching. You got it? They persevere in their faith all the way to the end. Now, I want you to keep that definition of that command under your hat as we look at the motivations to remain true to Christ. Go back to 1 John and to chapter 2. First motivation is because of the promise of Jesus' coming, because of the promise of Christ's coming. Look at verse 28. Christ's coming in the sky is the Christian's great hope. Verse 28, and now little children abide in him. Why? Why should I do it? So that when he appears, and then he goes on, when he appears, when who appears? When Christ appears, when we see him again, when he appears in the sky, that verb appear is phanerao, and it's in the passive voice. It indicates that God is the one who will reveal Christ and will manifest him in the sky when he comes back a second time. So in other words, anticipation of Jesus coming again is motivation to keep your faith in the present. If you don't think so, just think about how ashamed some people will be who grew up in church, who heard about Christ, or who made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and then they turned their back on Christ and they went back into the world because they thought they found more fun and more joy and more excitement there. And now think of Jesus returning in all of his glory and all of his might with all the holy angels with him. And now they have to face him and explain why they abandoned him. And then you can understand why that's great, great motivation to remain true to him. They decided that they would go back into the world. They decided they would hope in somebody else. They decided they would put their hope in the here and the now. And how foolish that would be. What else is there really to hope in? 
If you were not going to listen to this guy and you were going to walk out those doors and you were going to go out there and say, what else might I hope in in life? What are you going to go hope in? What really has any lasting value? What are you going to be able to keep? You know, people say to themselves, if I could just have that beautiful mansion on the corner and if I could just live there, man, what a wonderful hope that would be. But, you know, if you had it and you were in there, you would not be too happy without Christ. If I could just get that wonderful job, some of you might be thinking about that. That's my hope. It's in the here and the now. I just wish I had that wonderful job or I got to drive that fancy car. If I could just retire early and not have to work anymore, then life would be great. And that's where your hope is. But the Bible teaches over and over again the better hope is in Jesus and his second coming. Jesus rewards his followers. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1.1, it directly states that Jesus is our hope. Say, like, what do you hope for? I'm hoping for Jesus. What do you mean? I'm hoping for him to come back and reveal himself to me and to us and to gain everything that he promised that he said he would give to us. Now, in the 21st century, people might say, that's a foolish hope. Jesus said he was coming back 2,000 years ago. You still believe that? My answer is, yes, I do. Friends, all other hopes will ultimately disappoint you. They will not just disappoint you, they will fail you. Hoping in Christ will not. Do you know why? Because the biblical definition for hope is not wishful thinking. You know what wishful thinking is, right? I really wish I would do well on my test this week, you know? Or I, I really hope it's not going to rain on my picnic. That's just wishful thinking. You don't know the, whether it will or whether it won't. If that's what you think of when you think of hope, you've got the wrong definition of hope. Hope, biblically speaking, is a confident expectation that Christ is going to come again, that Christ is going to keep his promise, that he's going to bring us all the way to a future reward. Hebrews 10.23 exhorts us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Since God never breaks his promises, it doesn't matter 2,000 years have come and gone. We can be certain Christ is coming. Let me put it in the words of Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. That's what I'm looking for. Jesus is coming quickly. I'm waiting for him, and I'm waiting for his reward. So if I were to give it a definition, I would say this, write it down. A hope is a forward-looking faith, confidently anticipating God's reward and producing assurance inside of us during the present. And let me read that again. A biblical hope is a forward-looking faith, confidently anticipating God's reward and producing reassurance inside of us during the present. In Titus 2.13, it says we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Hope is something we look for. It is something that tunes us to the skies. Where is he? I know he's coming. I can't wait. There is no uncertainty about our hope. And this is why it is such a great motivator to remain true to Christ. Notice that John writes that if we abide in Christ, we will have confidence when Christ appears. But if we fail to abide... We're not going to have confidence. What are we going to have? We're going to have shame. We're going to have shame in his presence. 
Note the connection between abiding and confidence. Notice the so that in verse 28. Abide in him so that when he appears, not if, when he appears, we may have confidence. Perseverance in Christ breeds confidence when Christ returns. Now the word confidence here means boldness, freedom of speech, able to be in his presence without any apprehension or any regrets. Our abiding in Christ allows us on judgment day not to have any fears. In fact, in 1 John 4, 17, it says, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. As God so works in our life and we remain true to Christ and we see the love of Christ growing in our lives for others, we have a growing confidence to face that day when he returns, that judgment day. Do you want to face Jesus Christ confidently when he comes in the power of his kingdom? If you do, then abide in him. You know, with all of the emphasis on the teaching of eternal security in our Bible churches over the last several decades, some of our Bible churches have neglected to teach the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. That doctrine sounds strange to some people. They've always been taught, once saved, always saved. And they've concluded, well, if I'm saved and I'm always saved, I don't really have to worry about remaining true to Christ. I'm just always going to be saved. And they misunderstand that doctrine. That doctrine doesn't mean you're saved if you lose your faith. That doctrine means that because you're a believer, you'll be preserved to the end. That's what it means. God doesn't save people who start to believe and fizzle out and no longer believe. God doesn't save anybody like that. If your faith ends, your faith was never genuine in the first place. That's not saving faith. If you begin well, but you lose in the fourth quarter, you don't win the game. You have to believe now, believe at halftime, and believe at the end. That's saving faith. And so, even though the Bible does teach us that we're secure in Christ forever, yes, it is true, once you're saved, you're always saved. The Bible, in parallel to that doctrine, teaches, but you must maintain your faith all the way to the end. You must continue to believe. In fact, the command to believe is in the present tense. It doesn't mean believe one time. It means believe and never stop believing. That's what it means. The fact is, John, right here, and the New Testament, teaches that we must continue in our faith. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14. Hebrews 3, 14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If. If you hold fast your confidence all the way to the end, you have become partakers with Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It states that we are saved by the gospel. But then it goes on and says, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. Paul said, I preach to you the gospel. By that gospel, you're saved. If you hold fast to that gospel all the way to the end, otherwise you have believed in vain. Now, one of the strongest exhortations to remain true to Christ 
all the way to the end comes in the book of Hebrews, and I'd like you to turn there. Turn back just a few books to Hebrews chapter 10. This is a very powerful warning, and I want you to see it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. Of course, all the book of Hebrews is warning the Jews who are turning back to the world and turning back to Judaism not to turn their back on Jesus Christ. And one of the strongest warnings comes here in chapter 10. I'll start reading from verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. That's talking about your faith in God, your faith in Christ. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Verse 37. For yet in a very little while... He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And here's the warning, if he shrinks back, my soul, God is talking here, my soul has no pleasure in him. Do you see that? And then verse 39 is meant to reassure us, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. That's a powerful warning. What happens to the one who does not abide? What happens to the one who throws away his confidence in Christ? The answer is they shrink back to destruction. That's what Hebrews says. John says they will stand ashamed at the coming of Christ. Flip back to 1 John 2. Again, look at verse 28. And not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Just imagine someone horrified at the beautiful glory of Christ, Christ coming in all of his glory. And here is this, this maggot, this insect that has all of a sudden been blinded by the light and they're shrinking away and they want nothing to do with it. They're ashamed of their ugliness. They're ashamed of their own personal sin. That's how it'll be to the one who professed faith in Christ but then turned their back on Christ. They're ashamed. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the exact same word in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve did not sense any shame in their nakedness until they sinned. And then when they sinned, they understood their nakedness and they hid and they covered themselves because they were ashamed. In the same manner... There is a sense of spiritual nakedness as people with all of their sin stand in the presence of the one who is described as light and has no darkness in him at all. His shining, glorious person reveals everything that is true and it reveals the unfaithfulness of that person and they stand there ashamed. Christ's purity, seen at his appearance, explains the connection to verse 29. If you know that Christ is righteous, you know that everyone that is born, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Why does John write that here? To remind them that the one they will face on that day is righteous, and they've got to face him, and they're going to be ashamed if they live an unrighteous life. 
Their life of disobedience, their life of abandonment of the gospel will prove in the end they were not born of God. They were not pleasing to God. Brothers and sisters, this is a very serious warning from God's word. Jesus gave a graphic picture of this day in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. He said, and Jesus was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You got the picture? All the glory. You were ashamed of this glorious one, he will be ashamed of you. And you will stand in his presence shamed. Do you want to have confidence to face Jesus when he comes back? Abide in him. Remain true to Christ. You can face Jesus in his blazing glory because you will be clothed with his own righteousness rather than being naked in your own sins before his penetrating eye and see your own soul destroyed. You know, when this was written, the early believers there in the first century did not really know when Jesus was going to return. And they thought it could have been in their lifetime. Now we know that most Christians throughout church history have lived and died, right? And so most of us, it seems, although who knows in our generation, are going to see Jesus when we die, like my mother. And so we could, by way of application, say, what about when you die and you go into the presence of Christ? Will he receive you? And the answer is, yes, he will, if you what? if you abide. And no, he won't if you go back into the world. You know, to be absent from the body, we're promised in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, is to be present with who? The Lord. Think about that. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I asked the nurses, how did mom go? She went peacefully. She was drugged up. She was there in the hospital. She wanted to go peacefully. All that pain in her foot, you know. And there she is, some point in time, she's just sort of sleeping. And somewhere in there, she just left. No fanfare on earth, right? The monitor just went, or whatever goes, you know. And she's gone. How long does it take to travel to heaven? I don't know, I haven't been there yet. (laughs) To be absent from the body is what? I imagine it's pretty quick travel. I got to tell mom a couple months ago, you know, mom, the way it's going to work is there's going to be two angels that are going to come and grab you and escort you into the presence of the Lord. I got that from Lazarus and the rich man where the angels came and gave him an escort. I said, uh, they're going to be pretty powerful, mom. I think they'll be able to take you pretty quickly to the Lord's, Lord's presence. 
That's a great thing. What assurance we have as believers. When we die, when we die, we're going to be in the presence of God Almighty and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb. But only if we what? If we abide. Okay, you're getting it. All right. The second motivation, and rather quickly, the second motivation is because of our privilege of being God's children, verses 1 through 3 of 1 John 3. After mentioning the topic of being born of God at the end of verse 29 there, John picks that theme up of being a child of God, born of God, and runs with it for the next 10 verses in chapter 3. To begin with, in verses 1 through 3, John is showing how being a child of God motivates believers to abide in Christ. We're still on top of that mountain peak in John's letter, so to say. And you can really sense John's emotion, particularly in verse 1. Look at it. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. See. Uh, Your better translations will have behold, right? Behold, stand up and take notice of this truth. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. You know that what manner of love actually means what sort of love. The word originally meant literally from what country. So it has the idea of what a foreign idea. What a foreign idea this love is. This this kind of love that God showed on us that we would be children of God, that's that's a different kind of a love. That's a foreign kind of a love. Where did this love come from? It kind, of, it kind of expresses a bit of surprise. John says God's love is, well, don't think of any other kind of love that you think about in the world. It's, it's different from that. Uh, you might be very familiar with romantic love. Ah, push that out of your mind right now. Maybe you have great time when the family gathers and you have a lot of family affection. No, 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 no. That's too familiar a kind of love. This is not brotherly loyalty. It's an altogether different kind of surprising kind of love. Like Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love, his own kind of love toward us in that while we were sinners, let me kind of amplify that, while we were breaking his commandments, while we were turning our nose up at his offers, while we were rebellious against him, He sent Christ as a sacrifice to die for our sins. Amazing, amazing love. God's love is of the kind that he's taken sinners like ourselves, totally undeserving of anything that he has for us. And then rather than punishing us, he lavishes his love upon us. How amazing this is. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Now, the world throws this around. They say everyone is a child of God these days, right? But when when we're talking about being a child of God, we're talking about status in the universe. Children of God inherit the things that God has in his storehouse for them, all the riches that God has, he gives to his children. The children inherit the whole kit and caboodle, the whole thing, right? I mean, if you're the children of a billionaire, you're rubbing your hands away for the old man to die, right? Look what you're going to collect. We are not children of a billionaire. We are the children of God. 
God Almighty, ruler of heaven and earth, possessor of all things. He's our Abba, our Father. What manner of love. God takes his enemies and gives them son status. That's a crazy kind of love. But it's true. It's true. And John has to emphasize that. It's so crazy, he says next, but such we are. Such we are. Can you believe it? We are the children of God. Such as us, we are the children of God. How crazy, but how true. We are already children of God. You know, understanding your sonship in Jesus Christ will deeply motivate you to remain true to Christ. If God has made us his children, we know how well he's going to treat his children, right? We know nothing that the world has to offer you could compare. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 17, it says the world and its lusts are doing something. Do you see what they're doing? They're passing away. Congratulations. You got the things of the world. Yay. Three cheers for you. You got, you got the lusts of the world. Congratulations. They're passing away. You got the pride of the world. Whoopee. It's passing away. The children of God, they get something that never passes away. This is unbelievable stuff for us here. Son status. You serve the world, the world will give you all that it has to give you. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, but it's all passing away. You remain true to Christ, he gives you son status in the universe, and you get everything that comes with being the sons of God. You know, I think we're so used to being trampled on in our rights here in this world, we forget how privileged it is to be a Christian. Now, the world doesn't know that. The world looks at us and just sees a bunch of people that looks exactly like them, right? They don't think we're anything all that impressive. Ah, big deal. To them, what's the big deal? Well, that's because the world doesn't know God, and so because they don't know God, they can't know the children of God all that well either, can they? That's why it says later in this letter, chapter 3, verse 13, don't marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. They can't figure you out. Notice how it said, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. If they don't know God, they're not going to know you. They don't say anything special about you. They're going to they don't say anything special at all about being a Christian. They're not going to encourage you to continue to abide in Christ. What's the point from their perspective? They don't, they don't see any advantage to being a Christian. But when you understand your status as sons, what a glorious future you have. Why would you ever throw that away? You know, we heard about this guy, Antonio Brown. Wide receiver for the Steelers. No, wait. Then it was the Oakland Raiders. No, wait. Then it was the New England Patriots. No, wait. Now it's nobody because he threw it all away, seemingly. He had it. He was one of the greatest athletes, one of the 
greatest players. He threw it all away. What we have is more. Why would we ever throw it away? What we have is greater. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. What do you mean, John? He goes on. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Christ because we shall see Christ just as he is. See, the outward appearance of believers and unbelievers now looks the same. Then it's going to look very different. Because the glory that Christ has, he's going to share that glory with all of his sons, all believers in Christ. When we see him, we will be instantly changed to be like him, splendid and glorious. It's not just that he will be glorious and we will get a chance to see him. It's that when we see him, he will change us instantly to be like him. We will be like him. That means we will shine. We will be glorious as well. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3 says from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. He's going to change my small, tiny little body into conformity with the glory of his own resurrected body. What we are going to look like because we are God's children is indescribable. In fact, did you know all of creation is waiting for the day when there's a revealing? Everyone has these revealings these days. You know, we're going to reveal the gender of the baby. We're going to reveal this, that. Well, the world is waiting for a revealing, and it's the revealing of the sons of God. Romans 8, 19. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us, guys. We're going to be revealed. And when we were revealed, we'll be so grateful we remain true to Christ. Notice verse 3, he closes, everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. We go through a process even just by waiting for Jesus, hoping for Jesus when we die or when he returns in the sky, and thinking about our sonship and the status that goes with that and all the glory that's going to be given to us and the whole world that we're going to inherit along with Christ and all of the land that we will have and all of the farms and all of the beauty of nature and all of the fellowship of the family we'll have, all of the riches of the heavenly kingdom, all of it given to us. We wait for that. As we wait, and that becomes our hope, when we look expectantly for that, you know what it does for us in the present? It purifies us. It helps us to walk with Christ with greater sanctification. It helps us to be more motivated in our present Christian walk. Now, I know we laid a heavy thing on you today. Abide in Christ so that when he appears, you will not shrink away in shame at his coming. Abide in Christ because you are children of God and it has not yet appeared what you will be. You will see who you are in a sense in the future remain true to him so that God can bring you all the way to the end and reveal you in glory and we put that heavy duty responsibility on you you abide in Christ you remain true to Christ 
If, if all of that preaching at you made you feel kind of weak today, I want to leave you with one comforting thought. If you are not sure that you are strong enough to abide in Christ, if you are not sure that one day some temptation might come along and draw you away from Christ, if you're worried that the world's lures are too strong for you and that you're not going to be faithful to Christ, we have some good news for you also. And it comes from a prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, where after he told his disciples they needed to abide in him the way a branch abides in a vine, he turned right around and he prayed to his heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, while they were on earth, I kept them and I preserved them and I kept them safe, but now I'm departing from them. And Heavenly Father, I'm praying to you and I'm asking you, keep them in your name. And so he prayed to the Father, if they are too weak, if they are not confident in their own ability to maintain the faith all the way to the end, let them know that I've prayed for them that you would keep them and preserve them all the way to the end. And if that's not enough for you and you need a little more encouragement, listen to almost the dying words of the Apostle Paul in his last letter in chapter 4, his confidence. When he was about to be killed for his faith, he said, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever." and ever. Amen. That was his confidence. He said, I know that God will keep me. And brothers and sisters, if that's not enough for you, I want to leave you with one last benediction. Jude chapter 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. Our Father and our God, we are so, so grateful that when you command us to persevere in our faith to the end, you also promise to preserve us firm into the end. And we are so grateful for your saving and keeping power, for on our own we would wander away. And so we would pray, bind our wandering heart to thee, O Lord. Bind our wandering heart to thee. Thank you for the beautiful truth of what's going to happen, either at death when we enter into your glory, or at the second coming, the rapture, when we see you in glory. And thank you for the status as sons that we will receive all that you have promised because you will always be faithful and true to your own children. And we pray this with confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.